0: Well, good morning. Last week at School of Life and Doctrine class, um, we started a, a new series. A new series entitled Seeking Him Who Sought Us. It's a series on discovering who God is, dwelling on His greatness, His majesty, and seeing that the most important thought that we could ever think is what it is that we think about God Every single day because it impacts every aspect of our lives. But one of the things that we said as we got started in that class, one of our goals for the class is that we would develop an appetite for God. We would develop a taste for Him, a desire for Him. And that God would start showing us the inadequacy of our tastes and our desires for other things. And that those things would fade and our appetite for Him would increase. And one of the central ways that God grows an appetite in us for himself is to show us again and again what it's like to try to satisfy ourselves with someone or something else and to see how futile it is. To show us the emptiness of digging in a field that has no treasure. Of climbing up a ladder that's against the wrong wall the whole time. Or as Jeremiah says it, to paraphrase him, To try to fill broken wells and cisterns and cups with water only to find the water flowing out the cracks in the side. But a second way that God grows an appetite in us for himself is to show us again and again his jealous love for us. To convince us again and again that he has a white hot burning jealous love for us. Young Christians, young theologians, this morning I want you to consider two questions as you listen to the sermon. First, can God be jealous? Can God be jealous and also be holy and righteous? Is that even possible? And secondly, what is God jealous for? What is he jealous for? And how should we respond to that? How should we respond to what God is jealous for? Hear the gospel, the good news of God's righteous, jealous love for his people, as we read it first from the law and then from one of his prophets Deuteronomy 32. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol. It devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Ezekiel 39 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back for the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then... They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Father, we do pray that you give us eyes to see your word this morning clearly. That you would grow a jealousy in us for you as we see your great jealousy for yourself and for us. Do this for us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it's almost always ugly. It almost always looks like an ugly pig that's just come out of the mire covered in mud and its own poop. And it doesn't really matter what we do to it. It doesn't matter, we can put lipstick on it, we can put a wig on it, we can put a dress on it and try to make it look pretty. But in the end, a pig is a pig. And there's really not a whole lot you can do to hide that fact. And that's what jealousy's like when we see it. That's what jealousy is like when we behold it. Because when we behold jealousy, we're almost always seeing it in ourselves or in others. And it almost always looks that way. The dad who stands on the side of the basketball court or the soccer field and screams and yells and berates his child... Not because he cares so much about the child or cares so much about the team, but what he cares about is how his child is making him look as he or she plays poorly. He's jealous for his own reputation. He's jealous for everyone to look at his child and think, wow, what a great athlete, I wonder who his parents are. And when we see it, it looks ugly. It's a room full of women who quickly and quietly size up The gorgeous woman who just walked in the room. Do I go and say hi to her just to be nice? Because I for sure would like to not have to do that. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about God being jealous? First of all, maybe we should start with an earlier question. Is God jealous? Is that actually true? Is God jealous? And second of all, if he is... Is it okay? Is it okay for him to be jealous? And let's start with the first of those questions. It's definitely the easiest to answer for Christians. Because the Bible is very clear. Yes, God is jealous. He's jealous. He says so. In fact, in a shocking way, jealousy is such a part of who God is. It's such a part of his character that he mentions it in the eternal expression of his unchanging law. Because that's what the law is. He expresses it actually in the Ten Commandments. We'll read it here in a second. Because the Ten Commandments are an expression of who God is. It's not just a grocery list given to God's people as to what they're supposed to do. It first and foremost is an expression of God's unchanging character, who he is. And it has all kinds of implications, of course, for what we should do in response And so God says in Exodus chapter 20, as he's giving the Ten Commandments, the law to Moses, he says, starting in verse 2, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And here's the reason for both commandments. Here's the why. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Which brings us back to the second question. Okay, if God is jealous, and that's such an important thing for us to know that he actually includes it in the expression of his unchanging moral nature, how does that fit with what we know about God to be a holy God and a good God and a righteous God? And before we answer this question, let's take just a second and define what the Bible means when it uses the word jealousy. What does jealousy actually mean? Well, the Hebrew word is kana. that's the verb. And the basic root of this meaning is the act of advancing one's rights to the exclusion of the rights of the other. The act of advancing one's rights to the exclusion of the rights of others. It's often used to describe envy and covetousness towards an opponent Like when Leah and Rachel, the two wives of Jacob, are envious towards one another. They're jealous towards one another in Genesis chapter 30 because they both are competing for Jacob's love. So a lot of times when we see the word jealousy in the Bible, it's being used to prohibit the sin of envy or the sin of coveting somebody else's possessions or somebody else's status. But when the word is applied to God, It carries the meaning of zeal. Zeal for the advancement of God and His glory over against substitutes. Zeal for the advancement of God and His glory over and against substitutes. And this is how we find God using it in the Ten Commandments. So in all cases, the word basically means the same thing. One party believes it has exclusive rights to something... ...exclusive rights to someone... ...and it's offended that that exclusivity has been violated. You know that pay raise should have been mine. You told me the last cookie was mine, mommy, not hers. Everyone should be paying attention to me... ...and my pain, or my success, or my intelligence... Because my pain is so much worse than everyone else's I should be getting more attention or my intelligence is so much greater in this particular aspect that people should be listening to me instead of others. But here's the big difference. As sinful human beings with distorted hearts that are always turned back on ourselves with their affections we think we have exclusive rights to all kinds of people And all kinds of attention. And all kinds of possessions and promotions. When in reality we don't. But God has the exclusive right. The exclusive right to our love. The exclusive right to our obedience. The exclusive right to our worship. Because he's God. And so... Exclusivity in terms of his advancing his rights for exclusivity looks very different for God than it does for us because it includes the full glory due him from all of his creation in a sense that doesn't apply to us. And that's the context, not just of the Ten Commandments, but that's the context of Moses' song here in Deuteronomy 32 as well. What happened right after God spoke the Ten Commandments? Well, (laughs) Moses, even if you haven't read that part of Exodus for a while, you're probably at least familiar with the movie The Ten Commandments, right? So Charlton Heston is coming down the mountain, and he's bringing the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, with him, right? And Cecil B. DeMille thinks that not only was Moses' face shining, like the Bible says, after being in the presence of God, but evidently... He had significant facial hair growth, too. So his beard's like down to here. And he's coming down. And as soon as he gets into the camp of the Israelites, he looks. And what does he see? He sees the Israelites in full, absolute violation of all the Ten Commandments taking place right in front of them. All of them. Being broken like twigs. And most, maybe worst of all, the first two. I shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an image of me or any other god and worship it. And that's exactly what Moses, excuse me, that's exactly what Israel had done. They had begun worshiping a completely different god. They made up a completely new god, or rather, they borrowed one from the Egyptians, and then they made an image of it. And they be, be, began to bow down to worship it. What about after that? There's judgment that occurs there. There's atonement that's made, judgment that occurs there. But after that, Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they turn to idols and unbelief on a number of occasions. And it gets so bad that God decides that that entire first generation of Israelites are going to die in the wilderness. And it's the second generation that's going to go in and inherit the land. So when Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy, he's writing to the second generation of Israelites to remind them of who their God is, to remind them of their history, to remind them of the mission that they have before them, to go and enter the land and to conquer it. But he knows what kind of people they are because he's been living with them for 40 years. There are people who have hearts that are easily distracted. There are people who love their comfort, who love the absence of pain, who long for a sense of absolute certainty and absolute security, which is simply just another way of saying there are people who do not like to walk and live by faith. And all of that means that there are people who will throw themselves down. They will bow down as quick as lightning to anything and anyone who will promise them these things. In other words, there are people like you and me. There are people like us. Idol worship is just me worship. Because I always fashion an idol in my heart, an image in my mind of how I'd like God to be, even if that's not who God is. And as I fashion that image of him in my mind and in my heart, I begin to make a God that's more convenient for me, I begin to, to, to fashion a God who loves what I love and who hates what I hate, who wants what I want. I begin to fashion a God in my mind who's in my image rather than think, seeking to be restored to his image, which is what I was created in, as an image bearer. This is what idolatry is whether it's a little wooden stone figure that you bound down to on your mantle, whether it's simply just an idol of the heart and an idol of the mind. Every idol starts out there anyway. And so all of this begs the question, why would God be jealous for us? These are the kinds of people we are. This are the kind of people Israel was. And God was jealous for them. Why? These are the kinds of people we are. Why would God be jealous for us? And we find our answer in both of these passages that are here on page 6 of your bulletin this morning. First, God's jealousy for us springs from his righteous demand for worship. Deuteronomy thirty-two fifteen. 15. But Jeshurun, Jeshurun, is the word, that Jeshurun means upright. God's being very sarcastic here. The upright ones, God can be like very cutting with his sarcasm actually. The upright ones grew fat and kicked. You grew fat and stout and sleek. And what he's saying there is, you're going to go into the land and you're going to be prosperous. You're going to prosper. You're going to grow fat and sleek. You're going to be like a cow that has like full range in the pasture of all this wonderful grass. And you're going to grow fat and you're going to grow sleek. And then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. And you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God Who gave you birth. And so God is saying here, my jealousy, first of all, springs from my righteous demand for worship. You are worshiping that which are no gods. You are giving glory to those who do not deserve it. They're not gods. They didn't give you birth. They didn't create you. They didn't adopt you into their family. They didn't save you. And yet you turn to them and give them glory. And so all of this means, as the second part of Deuteronomy 32 on that page shows, all this means that God's discipline and his judgment, they're going to come upon his people out of his zeal for the greatness of his own name. And the Lord sought and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. Verse 19 And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for their perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So God's discipline, his judgment is going to come out of his zeal for the greatness of his own name. And all of this basically simply means that God is not an idolater. God is not an idolater. God wants and seeks all of the glory because who else would he give it to instead? Who else gave him birth? Who else stands behind God's existence? Who else is there that's greater? And of course the answer is no one. And if there was one, we would call that one God. And so God is not an idolater. All the glory goes to him because no one else is deserving of it. No one else is deserving of the glory, which means this. No one else is deserving of being called the most significant, the most important, the one who matters above all else. And he wants all the glory and praise because he knows that he created the world to function at its best, to find its greatest delight in glorifying him most. And that for his creation, for us to give ultimate glory to someone else is for us to try and live a lie, for us to try to make a fictional reality work for us, and it won't. So God's jealousy... For us springs from his own righteous demand to be worshipped because he alone is the creator of God and the saving God. But it also comes from another place. His jealousy is driven from another source too. God's jealousy for us springs from his loving ownership of us. His loving ownership. Remember how the Ten Commandments begin. We didn't print them for you, It'd Been just too, much, too many verses on the page. But the, as the Ten Commandments uh, began, as I read them a few minutes ago, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before he gives any commands, before, before, he, gives, before he gives to Israel any commands at all, he says, First of all, you should know this. I'm the God who reached into your muck, into your mire, into the house of slavery where you were held in bondage and you could do nothing about it. And 400 years proved it. And I reached in there and I pulled you out. And I saved you. I'm that God. That's me. So before he starts... With the list of laws expressing his unchanging moral nature and his demands on his people to live in community with him, God basically says, look, I'm the God who saved you. I'm the God who loved you. I'm the God who redeemed you. He starts with that. God's jealousy for us springs from his loving ownership of us. And so the Ten Commandments, they're they're not some way in which God has given to us to try to walk up this endless staircase, this endless stairway to impress him or to figure out a way to get into his good graces. The Ten Commandments are given to a people who've already been given those graces. They're an already redeemed people. They're earning nothing. They've already been loved perfectly and brought into fellowship with God by the time they receive the law. And so throughout Deuteronomy 32, Israel is called God's sons and God's daughters because he's adopted them and saved them from the slavery they were in. They're called God's sons and his daughters throughout Deuteronomy 32. And throughout all of scripture, God's people are called the bride. It's another metaphor that he uses to talk about his relationship to us. We're his bride. We're the spouse of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're his wife in Ephesians chapter 5. Which means this, that God's relationship to us is a covenant relationship. It's a covenant relationship. Because the husband-wife relationship and the parent-child relationship are covenantal relationships. They're formed by taking solemn vows. And then those vows are signified and they're lived out as we commit to one another in our bodies and our souls. They're covenantal relationships. God has a covenantal relationship with us. He's taken vows. He's made promises to us throughout Scripture, beginning with Genesis 3.15. And you can trace his promises to save his people, to betroth them to himself, to be faithful to them. And he's given us all kinds of things to signify those promises. As the church, we now see those symbols most expressly shown in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And then he committed to us with body and soul by taking on humanity in the person of the Son. Taking on full humanity. Committing to us body and soul. We're in a covenant relationship with God. And the only proper response to unfaithfulness in a covenant relationship is jealousy. It's the only proper response. The only proper response to a broken covenantal relationship is jealousy on the part of the one who is violated. You don't have to be a pastor very long and you start to come across instances where marriages are in trouble, marriages going through hardship, situations of adultery, divorce, I remember one particular situation years ago where a husband was cheating on his wife with one of her friends, one of her close friends. And the information comes out, information gets out there. And as the pastors and the elders and leaders of the church are gathering around this couple to help them, they're shocked. They're shocked because the response of the woman, who, the wife who'd been cheated on, there was never a moment in which her response to her husband or her response to her friend was "You jerks! I can't believe you did this to me." It was it was more like, "Well, you know what?" She she, she turns to her friend. She goes, "You know, I mean, I just want you to know. Look, I forgive you. Everything's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be okay. Let's let's just keep going on being friends." It's okay. It's all right. Let's just forget it happened. Let's just put it behind us. That was her first immediate response. It was concerning. It was concerning because it calls into question the depth of her love and the depth of the covenantal relationship with her husband. I mean, don't get me wrong, the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy, those are important places to end up. That's where we've got to end up. We've got to end up in the place of being gracious and forgiving and loving, but there has to be something to forgive first. There has to be something to be gracious about first. We don't get to leapfrog the stage of jealousy and anger, and hurt, and quickly move to the stage of grace and forgiveness when a covenant relationship is broken. That's not what God has done with our unfaithfulness. And so neither can we. We don't get to hurry up and jump to the resurrection without going through the cross first when a covenantal relationship is broken. And instead... A picture of what God does out of his jealousy towards our unfaithfulness is given from the passage that Jeff read a minute ago from Numbers 25. It's an uncomfortable passage. When I was looking at it, I was like, do I really want to drop this on everybody on Sunday morning? It's uncomfortable. You got Israel again. They're in the wilderness. and They've given themselves over to the Baals. They've committed spiritual adultery against God. And God's jealous his wife he's jealous and so he brings atonement to that situation and atonement in that situation is judgment, he judges his people the only way God's jealous wrath is assuaged, the only way forgiveness comes is through atonement and atonement only ever comes through judgment it's not you can't just speak words of atonement you can't just say "Eh, everything's okay, it's fine, it's good that's not atonement Hey, let's just put this behind us, pretend it didn't happen. That's not atonement. Atonement is judgment. And so in this case, the judgment fell on the guilty idol worshipers, didn't it? In Numbers 25. And Phineas, the priest, he's commended by God because Phineas shows a jealousy for God. A jealousy that moves him so deeply that he grabs a spear and he executes an idol-worshiping Israelite And his wicked wife on the spot. And it's a picture for us. It's a brutal picture. But it's a picture for us. Not just of the need for atonement. Although it's a picture of that. Not just just for the need of atonement because of God's jealousy for us and for his name. But it is a picture of one who has God's jealousy for his people burning in his heart. And in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all that Phineas was pointing to. In Jesus, we have God the Son who's been made human. And throughout his life, his heart is burning with jealousy. Burning in jealousy to see his people leave their idols. Burning with jealousy to see them leave their self-righteousness and to be reconciled to his father. Only instead of going and grabbing a spear and destroying the guilty ones, he goes to the cross himself. He's pierced with a spear. The spear comes to him out of his jealousy for his people. So it's a reverse, it's a reversal of what Phineas does as he bears the judgment for his people's adultery and covenant unfaithfulness. And so the cross of the Lord Jesus is not God coming upon our covenant unfaithfulness. It's not him finding us in bed with an idol and saying, well, I wish you hadn't, but you did. Oh, well, no big deal. Just know that we're okay. Let's pretend this never happened. No, that's not what the cross is. God could have just done that with words. But the cross is actions, brutal actions it's God pouring out on his son the full consequences of our unfaithfulness and pouring out his white hot jealous anger on his son as a sacrifice in our place our God is unchanging and because he's unchanging he's faithful and because he's faithful he's jealous for his people whom he loves so passionately And unreservedly, because there is no true love without jealousy. There's no true love without jealousy. And all this brings us to our last point the scope of God's jealousy. The scope of God's jealousy. God's jealousy not only moves him to judge covenant unfaithfulness, it moves him to redeem, it moves him to forgive. It moves him to repair broken relationships, to be gracious. This is the picture that we have in Ezekiel 39, in your bulletin. God says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. So he's talking about jealousy again. There's that word. It's coming back. But the first time we saw it, his jealousy was moving him to wrath. His jealousy was moving him to judgment. But this is a different situation. Verse 26. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations, but then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. All of this is language of salvation, it's the complete reversal. Of everything God does in judgment in Deuteronomy 32, instead of being driven out of the promised land and away from his presence, they're being restored to the land and restored to his presence. Instead of God hiding his face from them, God says, I won't hide my face from them anymore. Instead of being trampled down by their enemies, God's saying, I will conquer their enemies. I will trample down their enemies and they will never rise again. And then he ends with this, I will give them my spirit. In other words, I won't just dwell with them, I will dwell in them. And so the scope of God's jealousy is that it moves him not just to judge unfaithfulness, but to redeem unfaithfulness out of his people. To redeem unfaithfulness out of his people. To suck it from them like, a, like venom from a snake bite. And to replace it with himself. In the jealousy of God we see really kind of two tributaries. We see God's righteousness and holiness. But we also see his love. In the jealousy of God we see the righteousness of God. And the love of God merging together into one big mighty river. And it breaks down and it overwhelms and it destroys everything that gets in its way, but it does so in order to provide cleansing and life and vitality for people who need that river. That's how je- God's jealousy works. Our God is jealous for our time and our efforts and our affections, He's jealous for our authentic value and delight. But as we're devastated more and more in a good way by God's love shown to us in Christ, something begins to happen to us. We start to become jealous for him, like Phineas, like Jesus. We begin to put aside the obstacles and the idols that crowd out our affections for him. Because what happens is the wonderful thing that God does, his jealousy for us, begins to become our jealousy for him too. This is what God does for his people, in his grace and his mercy. And we ask that you would make it so, Lord Jesus. Father, we do thank you for this word that you've given to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who is the ultimate expression of your jealous love. Your jealous love that moved you to judge. But the jealous love that moved you to judge him in our place. Because your jealous love is not just wrath and anger. But it is grace and it is mercy and it is forgiveness for us. It is redemption. It is all these things. And So we pray and ask that you would make us a people that are increasingly jealous for you. That our jealousy for you would cause us to lay aside every encumbrance, everything that holds us back from a passionate pursuit of you, the knowledge of you, and fellowship with you, and obedience to you, along with your church. Do these things for us, because we can't do them for ourselves. We declare this morning that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are our jealous lover. And we want to become a jealous lover for you as well. So do this in us by your gospel. In Christ's name, amen.